James chapter 2, let's, um, second half of that chapter, starting in verse 14. What's great about today is um, James will continue in the second half of chapter 2, kind of what he, and we alluded to it last week, um, what he started all the way back in what Matt was teaching us on in chapter 1, and, and he'll continue. Lloyd will uh, pick up in chapter 3 next week, and throughout the book of James, what you're constantly reminded of is that gospel people, because again, James isn't writing to just Jewish people, he's writing to Jewish Christians primarily, and he's calling on people who have been, um, who have been saved by Christ, whose identity is now in Christ, now live that out. It needs, whatever, whatever you say you believe needs to work itself out in your life. So all the way back at the beginning of chapter one, he starts talking about trials and our response to those. Then he moves on into uh, temptation to sin, and how do we resist that temptation to sin? Then he goes and he says, uh, he, he broaches a topic that he'll come back to in full in chapter 3, and he says, your, your tongue, um, how do you use your tongue? And then um, if, you, if you really say that you have religion, true religion, undefiled religion, it has to show itself out in how you care for people on the margins and how you keep yourself unspotted from the world. And then as Paul reminded us last week, the beginning of chapter 2, he said, very beginning of, of the text, brothers and sisters who hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, you can't do that and also play favorites with people. You can't treat some people as though they're made in God's image and others that, like they aren't. So again, it's this constant theme of, and, and the nice thing is it's so practical, it's this constant theme of you're in Christ, you're people of faith, you're gospel people, that flows out in your life in very specific ways. Now he comes to the second half of chapter 2, and if you've read this text before or you've heard it preached on before, um, you know this, this, it can get kind of tricky here. And um, what he does, though, is he kind of broadens this whole, this whole argument to the place where he says, where he talks very specifically now about the relationship between faith and works. And there are two very important questions that we have to answer together before we can get out of this text and walk away going, okay, number one, we get what the text is saying, and then number two, we know how we're to respond in faith to it. So those are the two questions. So there are two questions that we'll address, and I'll come to the, what the actual questions are in a second. But what I wanted to start with was um, this quote, and you might be looking at that last name going, I recognize that name from like freshman intro to philosophy class. And the only reason I recognize it is because he was the philosopher with the cool name. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard was a 19th century Danish philosopher. And now everybody's like, oh yeah, I remember that. He said a lot of interesting stuff. This, uh, this quote in particular, I think, was really helpful. And I'd just like you to read it, think about it. Um, we're not going to say much about it now. We'll come back to it later. But he says this, and this is the, one of the most crucial definitions for the whole of Christianity, that the opposite of sin is not virtue, but faith. Let that sink in for just a few moments and think about that as we go along here. James is going to deal with two questions. One primarily and the second flows from it. That first question, he's going to ask, can someone have legitimate saving faith? Can someone possess the kind of legitimate faith that doesn't somehow... Uh, work itself out in action? Can someone actually possess that kind of faith that doesn't actually get put to work? 
That's the first question, and that's primarily what James is dealing with in this text. But there's a second question that's going to come up primarily in verses 21 to 26. And if you've read this text before, or you've studied this at all, you're probably already anticipating this. And that question comes down to, what relationship do faith and works have in regard to my justification? So those are the two questions we have to answer before we get out of this text, or else we're going to walk away either not understanding what James is getting after, um, or we're going to think it somehow that James is kind of off in regard to the rest of the New Testament and what we learn, what we know from the rest of the New Testament. Um, to kind of also frame a little bit more before we actually read the text, um, I was uh, just just to illustrate where we're heading. Um, I was in a meeting earlier this week, and uh, the guy I was meeting with was talking about our vice president of marketing. And he said, you know, I'm in a lot of meetings with this guy, and he's the smartest guy in the room, and he has amazing ideas, but it's like he never actually accomplishes anything that he has an idea about. And so he's just talking about how frustrating it is for him to have these amazing concepts, uh, marketing concepts, but nothing ever comes of them. That's where James is going, only it's in regard to our faith. You know how frustrating that is. You, you could, probably everybody could raise your hand and say, I know somebody like that. Probably all of us could raise our hands and say, I am somebody like that to some degree. I know I have been that way. I, you have great ideas. Oh, I'm going to do that. Try New Year's resolutions like every year. By January 8th, it's like, wait, what were those resolutions again? Um, and you've blown it in on, all, um, on all counts. All of those ideas, all of those concepts, all of those initiatives that you have that are so great, if they never get put to practice, it's, they're, they're worthless, right? James is going to head that direction in regard to faith. So the first half of this text, now the, the uh, verses 21 down to 26, we're going to deal with that second question primarily, but he's also using verses 21 down to 26 to give examples of what he's talking about in these, uh, these first several verses. Um, James starts with that, that first question up there. Can someone possess a kind of legitimate faith that doesn't somehow work itself out in action? And the way he says it is, what good is it, my brothers, or my brothers and sisters, we could say, if you say you have faith, but it never gets proven in your actions? Can that faith save you? Or is that faith legitimate or, le or, or living? And then he gives us an example. Someone comes to your house, they obviously don't have clothing, they obviously don't have enough food, and they're coming to your house specifically for that. And instead of giving them what they actually need, you, uh, the way James frames it, it's, it's kind of like this person is pronouncing a blessing upon that, that person, like, hey, brother or sister, eh, be warmed and filled. Blessings on you. James is saying, that's well, obviously, we all look at it and we're like, yeah, that's totally pointless. They came to your house in need. You sent them away, um, making them feel worse than how they felt when they came in the first place. Because not only did you not give them what you, they needed, you pronounced a blessing over them that was totally worthless. James is saying, in the exact same way, that is what it's like to say that you have faith, but it's not accompanied by action. We talked last week about the fact that we can't get those two things backward. We can't get the cart before the horse in saying that you have to have works in order for somehow God to love you enough to justify you or, in, or um, have works 
that um, make God like us any more than what he says he does. But James is saying, no, that's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm saying, you, tell, you say that you have faith. That's your claim. But if there's no action to back it up, there's no way to prove that out. In those next verses, he'll go into what, what we could call a diatribe, where um, you set up an, uh, an opposing position against yours and pretend that you're arguing against someone. That's what he does in these next several verses. And what he says is, but someone will say, so he's just, this is an imaginary person, but this is probably a concept that has come up in these churches around the, the Mediterranean world that has gotten back to Jerusalem. And he says, this person will say, you have faith and I have works. As though kind of like um, we're talking about, uh, if you're talking about spiritual gifts in the early church, someone might have said, you know, I have the gift of prophecy. And someone else says, I have the gift of speaking in tongues. And we'd say, oh, great. Those things complement each other. They're great for the church altogether. But you can have that gift and I can have this one. James is setting up this argument as though this person's saying, hey, you've got the faith handled. That's great. I've got the works handled. And, and they can be mutually exclusive when we're okay. And, and James is saying, no, <laughs> like, prove that to me real quick. Prove that you can have faith without any, any, any actions. I'll wait. Like, it doesn't make any sense. And so that's where, that's where he's saying the only way, and he goes on to say this, the only way you can actually show your faith is legitimate is through works of righteousness, is through good deeds. Otherwise, that faith is alone. And, and then he, he digs in a little bit more, and this is where it can kind of um, hit close to home for us, because so far, I think, probably all of us would say, yeah, James's argument is pretty clear. It's not hard to understand. Yeah, if you, if you tell someone you believe in something, you have faith in something, but you never actually act on it, that's just lip service. Talk's cheap, right? But then he says, he goes to theology, and this is where it may kind of hit home for us a little bit. He says, um, you believe that God is one. So again, he's back to this kind of imaginary argument. He said, okay, maybe we put it this way. You say, I, but I have good theology. I believe that God is one. Um, he, again, he's writing to Jewish Christians. They all would have known what he's referring to here. He's referring all the way back to Deuteronomy. If you remember Deuteronomy chapter 6, um, that text there is called the Shema, and it's a, it's a confession that all um, uh, Israelites, all Jewish, all Jewish people would have, would have agreed to, to say, yes, God is one. We're not polytheists, we're monotheists. And he said, you can say that. And he says, that's great. Good. I'm glad. Good for you. Guess who also believes that, gets it right, has actually pretty good theology, but there are no actions accompanying it, and they're going to hell. The demons. <laughs> he says, demons believe that. Good for you. I'm glad you got that right. Um, that doesn't prove anything to us. He comes back and he says, every argument that you make for your faith being uh, true, living, active, the kind of faith that God requires, if it is not accompanied by good deeds, it's dead. It's worthless. Has anyone ever uh, done one of those uh, maybe for work, an off-site trip for work, or maybe even in school, one of those trust fall scenarios? 
Anyone ever done those? Okay, yeah, several of you had. Um, was that pretty nerve-wracking to stand up there and actually have to like put your arms across your chest and really, really, really trust that the people behind you would actually catch you? You can see any videos that you watch or if you've done it yourself, you know that like turmoil to go, okay, I really hope these people. I can, you can say all you want about it. You can say, yeah, I trust my coworkers. But until you actually fall backwards and allow them to catch you, um, total lip service, it doesn't matter. You could stand up there all day and say, hey, I trust you guys, trust you implicitly. I know that you would catch me. I'm just not going to do it right now because it's not the right time. I saw, I saw a video a couple weeks ago of a similar scenario, and the guy goes to fall back. They had a whole group back there. Like, it's the perfect scenario where it's like, yeah, they're going to catch him. They all missed him. I don't know how they missed him, and it looks so painful. It, uh, I wish I, I should have put the video up. The guy falls straight back. You know he's like, yes, I trust you guys implicitly. Bam! And I'm like, that guy, number one, is never doing another one of those things, and he is never trusting any of those people again. Our faith, we can say that we have faith all day long. We can have the best theology. We can, you can read all of Grudem's systematic that we'll go through over the next period of time. You can go through that. You can memorize it. You could have your theology down cold if your faith that you say that you possess is not accompanied by works. It is worthless. And that's tough. That is tough. Now, you could be asking, and I, and I hope you are, um, thinking about, okay, um, what are those good works? Like, how do I kind of prove that out? We'll come back to that. We'll come back to that in a, in a few minutes. But what, what we need to also address is that second question. John Calvin says this, and as Paul contends that men are justified without the aid of works, so James will not allow any to be regarded as justified who are destitute of good works. That brings us to that second question. We would agree that we've already seen in this first half of the text, James will not allow anyone to be regarded as justified who are destitute of good works. But what about Paul? Because some of you, your minds might have already gone there. In the, the, this next section, in the, in the latter half of this text, um, the second question comes up, and that is, okay, we know that you need to prove your faith by your works, but how does faith and works, how do those work with each other in regard to our justification? Like, um, the way that James is arguing kind of makes you think, uh, is he arguing for like adding works to, to your faith in order to be saved in the first place? And if you aren't thinking that already, you will here in just a second. Uh, verse 21, he says, Abraham was justified by works. Verse 22, um, faith was completed by his works. Verse 24, you see that a person is justified by his works. Verse 25, Rahab the harlot justified by works. If you took each one of those out of context, you could make uh, things really interesting for yourself really quickly. But as we read through that, is, do you not kind of feel a little uneasy about that? What do you, when, when it comes to, when it comes to um, what James is teaching here and what you know um, is in like the writings of the Apostle Paul, take Romans, for instance, or Ephesians, what potential discrepancy do you think arises if we're not careful 
If we were to go back to Romans chapter 4, you would read Paul saying, um, no one is justified by the works of the law. And then you read verse 21 here, and James is saying, Abraham was justified by works. So <laughs> how, how do we reconcile these two? Can these be reconciled? And there have been plenty of people within the history of the church who said you can't. In fact, there have been many who have looked at James and say, wow, he's, he's really at odds with Paul here. But I don't believe that's the case. I think James proves it in his text here, and I think what it really comes down to is um, the, the whole crux of the, the potential discrepancy, but actually what unifies them is how James and Paul use the term justified. In Paul's conception, if, you go, if, we, if we had time to go back to Romans chapter 4, in Paul's conception of justification, Paul is saying, here is how you are entered into Christ. Here is how you are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of, of God's dear Son. You are declared righteous on the merit of Christ alone. And he, and he uses that throughout Romans 4. Actually, much of the first part of Romans deals specifically with that. That is how he's using the term justification. In Paul, he's saying, your entrance into Christ is based on the merit of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, and not your own. You are declared righteous not by your works. It's impossible. You can't do that. It's not just in Romans. Any of the Pauline epistles that you read, you'll get the exact same theme. For James, when he is talking about justification, he is using, he is using that term in a very different way from how Paul is using it. And that's very, very important for us to understand. Otherwise, we will fall into that pit of going, uh, the New Testament doesn't even reconcile with itself. Or, okay, I do have to do all that I can in order for me to be worthy enough for Jesus to kind of take it the rest of the way and save me. When I have done all that I can do, then Jesus kind of picks up the slack from there. That's not James' argument at all. Where... Paul is talking about justification that gets you entrance into Christ, where you get your declaration of righteousness on the merit of Christ. James is using the examples of Abraham and Rahab to show <clears throat> that your true faith, the faith that you say that you have, your professed faith in Jesus, is vindicated based on your works. It's not made possible by your works. Your works don't in some way enhance your faith enough for God to love you. No, the faith that you have, the saving faith that already exists, is proven to be genuine, living, real by your obedience. And we can see that very specifically in the example of Abraham that he gives. The example that, Abraham, that, he, that he gives for Abraham comes from Genesis chapter 22 where Abraham, who has already at this point been declared righteous by God by virtue of his faith, makes good on that faith by obeying God in taking Isaac, his only son Isaac, the son that God promised to give him and Sarah in their old age, and the son that he promised to bring about the nation of Israel and the seed, singular, that would one day bless all nations, that seed being Jesus, God has already made that promise to him, and then he says, now go kill your son. <laughs> 
Abraham's faith that he already possessed. And the reason we know it from this text is James actually gives the quote directly from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. He says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous. That was seven chapters before. Abraham, with his faith that he already possessed in God, the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God, the the love of God, acts upon that faith, goes, takes his son Isaac, puts him on an altar, and he's about to plunge the knife into his son when the angel of God stops him. That's the example that James gives because he, show, he says, you want to you see how faith actually works itself out? It works itself out in us obeying God, even to great personal risk, even when it doesn't make sense, but we're resting in the fact that, yes, we do in fact believe on him. We do in, fa- we do in fact have faith in his promises and who he says he is. And that's how Abraham was justified by his works. Not justified in order, to, um, in order for God to love him, in order for God to save him, in order for God to declare him righteous. Justified in the sense that his works vindicate the fact that what we already know about him, that he had faith in God. He follows that example up with one other, which you may be going like, how do we go from Abraham to Rahab? Like this is... Well, again, he's writing to Jewish Christians. So he's writing to people who have venerated Abraham throughout their history. Abraham is looked at as the ultimate uh, Jew of all Jews. He is looked at as the ultimate forefather. He is looked at as the ultimate example of faith. So let's take, let's take Abraham and go from him to a pagan <laughs> who wasn't Jewish, and she's a prostitute. And let's prove that faith that, that someone's works justify their faith. He's, he, he goes back to Joshua, and he points out the, the, the story about how just before the children of Israel go into um, the land of Canaan, they send out the 12 spies. You remember the story? They go seek out the land. They go see what, we're, what they're up against. Two of those happen to go to the city of Jericho. And if we went back to Joshua chapter 1, we would see these two, these two spies, somehow or other, they're, they're kind of found out that they're within the city. Nobody's found them yet, though, so they run into the house of this prostitute, Rahab, and when they go in there, she basically tells them, listen, we've been hearing about you guys and what your God has been doing, and it's nuts. Like, everybody around here is freaking out. I mean, she doesn't exactly use those terms, but you get the idea. We're, we're freaking out around here because we've, we saw what happened with some of those kings that you came across as you guys have been coming from Egypt, and nobody knows what to do. But when I've heard of what's happened, guess what I believe? That he is the one true God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She, she professes that faith. She says, this, this God is not like the ones we've been worshiping. And I want to I be on his side from now on. That's a great statement of faith. But what, is, what does she do that actually shows that it's real? At great personal risk to herself, probably with a lot of like internal uh, torment about like, what happens if I do this? She says, go up to my roof. You're going to hide there. When the city officials or whoever's out searching for you comes by my house, I'm going to send them another way. I'm going to send them on a wild goose chase so you guys can get out of here. Just remember, <laughs> when you guys come back to, to knock this place down and kill everybody in it, uh, 
remember what I'm doing for you. But what she does is actually vindicates her faith by actually following through with action. And that's how James speaks about the fact that her works justified her. They showed that the faith that she said she had was actually real. So again, James and Paul are not at odds at all. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. They're like puzzle pieces that fit perfectly together. Because James' argument is not that you work your way into salvation in Jesus. No, it's you work out the salvation in Jesus that you already have. While Paul's argument is you do not work your way into into salvation in Jesus, he's already done all that work for you so that you can be declared righteous. That makes all the difference for us. It makes all of the difference. And we talked about it last week. When we know our position in Christ, when we know that nothing that we can do, number one, gains us a standing with God or enhances our standing with God in Christ in any way, shape, or form, we then can respond with incredible joy because now we recognize this is a matter of identity not about something that we got to kind of work out so we, can, uh, so we can in some way prove who we are. Um, it is, you are in Christ, the good works will naturally flow out. You will see them come out in your life. And that's James's argument from all the way back at the beginning of chapter one that Matt talked about a couple weeks ago. When he talked about how you respond to, tri- respond to trials, James actually says, um, the trying of your faith works patience. Not the trying to see if you have any faith. It's the trying of the faith you already possess. Beginning of chapter 2 that we talked about last week, the faith that you already possess in the Lord Jesus does not allow you to be a, a, a player of favorites. It is who we are in Christ that, the ter- that determines the good works that flow out. And that's where, again, we come back to that same quote from Calvin. And as Paul contends that men are justified without the, aids of, the aid of works, so James will not allow any to be regarded as justified who are destitute of good works. And if you need any final, like, maybe tie a bow on this between James and Paul, if we were to go over to Ephesians chapter 2, very familiar verses, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. The very next verse, verse 10, says what? For, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's why you're in Christ. So, to finish up in these last couple minutes, think about this. Maybe um, when it comes to, okay, so how do I respond to this in faith? Maybe the thing that has rattled around in your brain, I know it has as I've, as I've read this text, where you go, well, what are those good works? Like, we can talk about good works in theory, but like, what does it actually mean to work them out? Well, this is, the, this is scratching the very tip of the iceberg, but if you just take our current context in James, you get plenty of examples right out of the gate. Back to chapter one, responding to trials. Do we run to God for wisdom or do we kind of just bear down and kind of grin and bear it or rail at him for what he's brought into our lives? Um, how, are we, how are we doing at resisting temptation to sin? How are we hearing and doing the word when it calls upon us to respond in faith. 
regarding our tongues. Verse 26, we'll come back to that, like I said, next week with Lloyd in chapter 3. Are we caring for those on the margins of society, or do we kind of just, hey, too bad. I got I to gotta focus on my own. Um, are we keeping ourselves unstained from the world? Are we playing favorites? We could continue and continue and continue, but if you just need a few examples of what it means to actually live out this true faith, James has already been giving a bunch of those, and he will continue. So make sure you come back over the next weeks to hear chapters 3, 4, and 5. But as a follow-up to that, one of the things that you might be looking at and saying is, man, if I really take stock of, of where I'm at, two different, two different approaches. You might have one, you say, man, I just... I really don't see any evidence of good works in my life that are springing from my faith. It's more of like, I'm tr- I've been trying in some way to get God to like me a little bit more or love me, trying to feel in some way worthy of, um, of God, but, I, but they haven't really been springing from like actually my trust in Him, my trust in Jesus. Or you could say, yes, I absolutely have placed my faith in Jesus alone for salvation, but if I look back at this week, man... I stink at this stuff. And I haven't, been, I haven't been responding in faith by actually working out my faith in action, in love and service to others. In, in like uh, last week in, in the beginning of chapter two, fulfilling that royal law of loving, loving my neighbor as myself. What is the answer to that dilemma? It's the same answer for the non-believer and the believer alike. Repent and believe the gospel. Because as we repent and believe the gospel, guess what is eventually always going to happen? Because it's, it's a matter of a change in our identity. It's a ma- it may be just a reminder of who you are actually in Christ. The good works that flow from faith will come. Peter tells us, we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. Everything that we need to actually prove our faith out through our works will come through repentance and belief in Jesus. In fact, I think it wasn't it Martin Luther that said the entirety of the Christian life can be summed up in this, um, uh, repentance and faith, repentance and faith, repentance and faith. It is a constant process of repenting and believing the gospel. So if you're, if you're sitting there going, man, uh, struggling in this area, it's not, okay, I'm gonna get to work, I'm gonna fix all this. First, before you get to work, repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, um, we thank you for the fact that it is not death to die. And um, we thank you that for those um, who are in Christ, um, who didn't get there by, by virtue of, of their works, none of us do, none of us will, nobody ever has, um, but purely by your grace, we thank you that those who are in Christ, Linda's dad being prime example right now that he is now with you and thank you for that and we pray for ourselves um, now as we go help us to respond in faith um, through deeds of righteousness that show who we are in jesus not in any way doing them so that we increase our standing with you or somehow get you to like us or love us more but because we are loved eternally for jesus sake help us to respond with deeds that show that we are truly in Christ and that Jesus' values are our values too. And we pray these things through his name. Amen.